Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on all audio platforms and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. Now, given the COVID-19 scenario, we've moved to recording our interviews via Skype or Zoom, but hopefully you won't notice much difference in the quality. My guest today is Shane Dumphy, a former child protection worker whose first nine books were non-fiction titles, outlining some of the extremely harrowing stories he saw every day doing that work. More recently, he has since written a series of crime novels featuring criminologist David Dunnigan. The fourth in the series is called Why She Ran, and that's out now. He's also a columnist with the Journal.ie and the head of the social care department at Waterford College of Further Education. Now, Shane, you've obviously had a very interesting writing journey, a lot of non-fiction and then a switch to crime fiction of all things so we've lots lots to talk about but I suppose first of all just wondering when did the urge to write initially emerge? I've been writing since I was about five or six years old um, my, the, the first thing I ever wrote was um, a kind of a an attempt at a, a horror story uh, my I, BBC when I was a kid used to show horror movies, the old kind of hammer house of horror on a Friday evening. And one of my friend's older brothers or sisters, um, when I was, as I said, maybe five or six, let us know that the Dracula, the the old hammer Dracula movies with Christopher Lee, one of those was going to be on. And I asked my mother if I could stay up late to watch it. And she told me that, um, you know, I was way too young to be looking at something like that. But if I wanted a a scary story, why didn't I write one? So I sat down and uh, wrote a story called The Monster from the Green Lagoon. And um, it was the story of a bunch of of friends who all happened to have the same names as my friends. And they went out to play at a local pond near where they lived one day. Uh, And there was a pond, as it happens, very near where we used to live, where we used to go and play. And when they got there, there was this enormous big Godzilla type monster rearing up out of the pond um, when they got there. Uh, the problem was, of course, that um, being a child who'd never seen a horror movie or, or read anything like that at, at the young age that I was, I had no idea what a scary monster should do. So I had him just kind of standing there looking threatening. And eventually one of the, the kids in the story's parents rang the men from the local authority who came and took it away in a truck. Um, and that was my story, which probably wasn't terribly scary at all. But because my friends were all in it, they were very impressed by it. And I got a lot of positive attention and that encouraged me to keep writing. And I published my first piece in a collection of stories. Um, The collection was called I Hate Mustard. Uh, It was named after one of the poems that was in the in the in the book. And that was published when I was 11. And uh, it was actually mentioned on the Late Late Toy Show. Gay Byrne took it down off the shelf and actually opened it up onto one of the pages from my story. And I had drawn some little illustrations in it the story that i wrote and that was called germs and it was about a again a a community of germs who lived under the housing estate where me and my friends all lived and he commented on it and again as you can imagine i got a lot of positive attention for that as well so um i kind of wrote throughout my my teenage years uh and then when i went to college i kind of started getting into obviously academic writing and things like that but it wasn't until 
I had a, a car accident when I was 28, 29. I was working in child protection at that stage. And obviously that's a very physical job. So when I had the car accident, I ended up in a wheelchair for six months and we didn't know whether I'd get back walking again at all. And I ended up um, having to teach during that time because, as I said, you, you you can't do child protection work if you can't chase kids up trees and stuff like that. So when I got into the teaching, I felt an urge to maybe address some of the difficulties and traumas and things like that that I was carrying around with me from the years that I spent doing child protection work, potentially the cases that maybe hadn't had happy endings. A lot of them don't, but some of them I felt I had failed, you know, really badly and that I, I had let let the, the, the clients, the kids I'd been working with down. And Wednesday's Child was an attempt, which was the first book that I wrote, the first nonfiction book. It was an attempt to address one of those cases in particular, the the, the, the case that I refer to. The, the, obviously, you, you give the kids in these books assumed names, you anonymize them. And one of the stories in that book deals with a, a girl that I call Gillian, who I had let down. I felt that I had let her down and the system had let her down quite badly. And Wednesday's Child was an attempt to address that. And my plan originally with Wednesday's Child was only ever to write one book. I was going to write this book. I'd have a book that I published with my name on the spine, sitting up on the shelf. My friends and family would read it and that would be it. But um, to my great surprise, and I believe the surprise of my publishers, it went to number one on the nonfiction bestseller list. And the next thing I knew, I, I had a series on my hands. And did you find it cathartic in terms of addressing that guilt that you felt? Yes, I did. I did. Um, what happened was when the book came out, we, we, we had tried to, obviously, when you're writing nonfiction, the lawyers go through everything with a, a fine tooth comb. And we had... The, the character of Gillian in the book we knew, regrettably, was no longer with us. So we, we managed to track down some members of her family who gave permission to, to write her story. There was a couple of other people that I wrote about in that book who we were able to get permission from to write about them. But there was one girl in particular whom I called Connie in the book, and we could not find her, couldn't track her down at all. So... The lawyers reckoned we changed enough information that nobody was going to be able to identify her. Uh, so they said, just go ahead and write it. So I did. And the book came out. And the next thing I'm on the Late Late Show and I'm Jerry Ryan gave me a full hour on his radio program. And as I said, the book was hugely successful. And about a month after it came out, an email arrived into my my work email account um, and it was simply two lines and it was, thank you for telling my story. It meant an awful lot. Signed, Connie. Really? She didn't use her real name. She used the name I'd given her in the book. And I thought, OK, because I had been worried, particularly if she came across it, what would she think? Because I hadn't dressed up her story at all. She was a kid that I didn't feel I had even really particularly bonded with. But the details of her case were very significant to me that, again, it was another case I'd been carrying around. And I was really worried. But when she said that, when I got that email, I kind of thought, OK, yeah, that there's a value in what I'm doing more than just helping myself. It means something to these people. And of course, after Wednesday's Child did well, I had people stopping me in the street looking for me to write their stories. Um, but I was I was very careful that, uh, you know, I wanted to continue writing stuff that I felt needed to get out there. I really wanted to. There was nobody in Ireland writing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I was very inspired by an American writer called Tori Hayden, who's a special needs teacher, and she wrote a book called One Child, which was very meaningful for me and, and really was the, the, the book that got me into child protection in the first place. But there was nobody in Ireland doing it. And I wanted to show in my in my books that the people who get into this type of work don't do it because they want to drag children from their mother's arms and put them into care. They do it because they want to make a difference. They do it for the right reasons. And I wanted to show how incredibly fucking difficult a job it can be as well. And the personal cost on the people who are doing it. I mean, you burn out so, so quickly. And I mean, at the end of Wednesday's Child, I'm burned out and I have to leave. I have to go do something else for a while. And book two in the series, which was originally published as Last Ditch House, and then when it got picked up by Penguin to be published in the UK and further afield, they changed the title to Crying in the Dark. That book picks up about a year later where I'm kind of drawn back into the work again. And that is how it tends to happen. You need to stop for a while and you go and do something easier and then you gradually find yourself drifting back. And that's kind of been the the, the pattern throughout my, my career doing this type of work. Um, but I really wanted to show that, that this is something that does take its toll. And if you do it, you're doing it because you really care about what you're doing. And that was very important to me. I also was very taken by the fact that in... Some of the books that I'd read in the genre, um, it's called inspirational memoirs or people in publishing tend to call them misery memoirs or misery lit, which is <laughs> a horrible title, but I've kind of learned to embrace it. Um, there were a couple of books out there, one in particular called A Child Called It, which I'm sure a lot of um, people listening to this will be familiar with, that I felt veered very much on the uh, on the side of being extremely voyeuristic and almost, I hate using the term, but there's a slightly kind of pornographic element to the very, very graphic descriptions of abuse. I really didn't want to do that. Um, my books take up the story after something awful has happened. And, you know, child protection services or whoever come in. And it's about how the families and the children cope with what they've been through and come out the other end. So I wanted my books to really portray these kids and these families as heroes. They're, they're not victims, they're survivors, they're people who've come through this and come out the other end usually stronger. You know, there may not always be a happy ending. Things might not always be necessarily hunky-dory and rosy in the garden for them, but they have survived. They, they, they've made it. And I wanted to show that these, you know, incredibly heroic things are happening, you know, in our in our housing estates and in rural Ireland and maybe just down the road from where you're living, that they're happening all the time and, and these people deserve to be celebrated. Um, the workers in the books, myself and, and, and my colleagues, I mean, and particularly the way I try and describe myself, you know, I'm often a complete asshole in these books. I make bad decisions. I can be incredibly arrogant. I can be very confrontational because the job requires that you do that. I, I've explored in several of the books the fact that I don't always like the me that I am when I'm working. It's a different me. It's a totally different person. And it has to be. You kind of go into work mode. And I try to portray that warts and all. The, the good people, the people you should be rooting for, are the, are the kids and the families involved. And as you say, the aim is to put a face on the stories, to let people know that there are yeah. lives and children behind these stories. 
Absolutely, that these are not just statistics. We tend to, and I mean, I, I've been as guilty of this as anybody, kind of in some of the work that I've done in, in the newspapers, we tend to write about these cases and, and Ireland kind of gets up in a tizzy about them when something awful happens and, you know, some kid dies in the care system or there's some terrible abuse scandal and everybody wrings their hands and says, oh my God, this is awful. But then the news cycles on and in two weeks' time we've forgotten about it. But these people are still continuing. Their lives are still going on. The struggles still continue. They don't go away. And, and that's what I wanted to address in these books. What happens afterwards? Mm. What happens when they have to pick up the pieces and keep going? And, and, and I, th I think that there's incredible courage that goes on in, in, in rebuilding your life. It can be one of the most difficult things that anybody can be asked to do. Uh, and so that's what, what the Wednesday's Child series was really about celebrating. And, and as the stories continue, you know, I, I take on different roles. You know, one of my books, one of my most successful ones um, is a book entitled The Girl Who Couldn't Smile, which is about a year that I spent working in a creche for kids with behavioral difficulties. And um, that book has been so successful, I think, because nobody gets abused in it. I, I, <laughs> it, it it's my child protection book in, in, in which nobody gets abused or molested or anything. And people have loved that book, um, I think, because of that, because it deals with a completely different side. You know, these are children who are almost in the peripheries of the system. They're kids who the school system can't cope with. And their parents generally want the best for them. Um, but they're at their wits end because these are kids that are so behaviorally challenging that a classroom can't cope with them. So what do you do with those kids? Um, another one of my books then, which is the one that has been optioned for film and is in, in development at the moment, um, is, is called uh, The Boy They Tried to Hide. And it's about a case that I got involved in actually as a, as a teacher. So through my teaching, I, I got asked to, to, to work with this kid who was ru consistently running away into the woods at night to go and play with his imaginary friend. And so I'm actually dealing with that from the outside. I, I'm actually not dealing with it as a child protection worker at all. I'm uh, just simply a kind of a I suppose somebody from the community who's trying to help this this single mom deal with the problems that she's going through. So in the series, I try and look at different types of ways that we can get involved with some of these cases. And generally, how long would it take you to write one of these? The probably the longest part of the nonfiction books is actually the plotting because it's usually I've got two or three different stories that are running concurrently. Usually, they're not stories that actually did happen at the same time in reality. Um, my, my, my books deal with different cases that have similar elements. And as part of the anonymizing process to make sure that people aren't going to recognize, oh, this happened here because I recognize this, I often weave them together into a single timeline. So that plotting process can take a month or even two months to actually you know, weave together and make sure that everything is hanging well. But when I sit down to write it, I could probably... I think the fastest one that I've written was in eight days. Eight days, was, really? Eight days, yeah. But I, I can usually, uh, two to three weeks, I could probably, I could probably write one. I write very quickly. Um, I have to. It's part of my process that I need to be completely immersed in what it is that I'm doing. Um, so I will disappear into my study or into my writing shed and just... I, I'll put in 16-hour days sometimes just, just pumping it out. And obviously then you've got a first draft, which is complete shit, <laughs> and you have to go back through it and uh, iron out the glitches. And, um, you know, I, I may even do a structural rewrite after that. But first draft, I would say eight 
to 10 days is probably not unusual. Well, there'll be a lot of authors listening to this now who will be very, very jealous of that time frame. And when it comes to the editing, then how do you find that? I embrace the editing process. Um, I'll do the first edit myself, as I said. I'll do I'll do a rewrite and make sure that when I'm sending it in, it's as clean as possible. But I've been very lucky in that I've had some wonderful editors. I mean, my first editor was a lady called Alison Walsh when I was with Gillian Macmillan, and Alison had been a social worker herself in the UK, so she understood the reality of what I was doing. Um, I mean, I'm working now with um, Kira Dorley in Hachette and a guy called Martin Fletcher edits my work for Amazon and Audible. And they're all absolutely wonderful. And I believe that an editor's job is to make my work look better. So any and all suggestions are taken on board. And I mean, I'm not saying that I'm a pushover. If I absolutely don't think that something needs to be changed or altered, I'll stand my ground. But I'm very, very open to the editorial process. It, 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 it all, you know, I, I've actually seen um, where a change, you know, just suggesting, OK, we don't think that this paragraph works here. If we move it maybe to an earlier place in the chapter, the whole thing will flow. And it's almost like if, if you're using the analogy of, of kind of, you know, medicine, it's almost like unblocking an artery and the thing suddenly flows so much more easily. Um, my, my new nonfiction series is is for um, is an audible original. So it's first published as an audio book. And so I'm, I've learned an awful lot about writing for something to be read aloud. So the rhythm of the language needs to be right. And that's been a real eye opener for me as well, because it's actually helped me to iron out what I think may have been some sort of bad habits that I had. I'm, I'm a big fan of Charles Dickens writing. So some of my sentences tend to go on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> um, and, and just learning to abbreviate and simplify what it is that you're doing. And that's all come from from the editorial experience. So I, I, I really embrace editing as, as an important part of the job. And this new series, as you said, it's going to be available on Audible as an audiobook, but also on Amazon as an ebook. But are you going to be writing yes. nearly two different versions then for both? No, no, no. Um, I mean, it, it, it will appear in print uh, as as you will have heard it as an audiobook. But it's interesting because I found that um, my readers for my nonfiction are incredibly loyal and many of them don't read anything other than nonfiction and kind of inspirational memoirs. And some of them have found the move to audio quite challenging. And some of them have said to me that they're going to wait for the uh the the ebook or the the print edition to come out before they read so it will be exactly the same version um the only difference will be that there's a kind of a, an acknowledgement and sort of like a bit of a an afterward kind of thing so you'll get a little extra bit of that when you when you get the ebook or the print edition because that kind of stuff doesn't belong in in an audiobook you don't want to hear me thanking a list of people um you know <laughs> you don't want to hear me reading that out uh but no the the the, the actual versions are are going to be exactly the same so are you reading the audio version Yes, I, I have the first one, Bleak Alley, came out in February and I did the, the reading of that. And I want, when lockdown is over, I'll be going over to, to London to, to do the audiobook for the second one in the series, which is called The Bad Place. It has been an eye opener. I'm not going to pretend that it hasn't been. Um, I was incredibly nervous going over to do the, um, the audiobook for Bleak Alley. I had gone over to visit Audible Studios um, a few months in advance of that, I went over last summer 
and arriving at the studios to discover quite a number of very, very well-known actors um, in their doing you know, different audiobooks and the studio that I worked in, I was informed by my producer that um, this is the one Stephen Fry uses when he's doing his work here. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is, they're going to find out that I can't do this. This is going to be awful. But you kind of get into the rhythm of it and they're very understanding. The biggest problem that I had was that, and I never even knew that this is something that I, that, that happens to me, but my stomach started gurgling after lunch. Really? <laughs> and I had to do the, the, the afternoon with a pillow kind of pressed up against my abdomen to, to mute the, the, the sound of that. But uh, other than that, listening back to it, to be honest with you, I can hear maybe that there are certain passages that maybe I'm rushing a little bit and I'm probably going to do book two slightly differently. I've been, I'm, I'm, I've been practicing a little bit to sort of try and make it sound maybe less rushed and less forced. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's all part of a learning experience and I feel very, very privileged that they've, that they've asked me to do it. And how many hours were you in the studio for to record that book? We did it over, we had booked two days in the studio and I was finished by lunchtime on day two. Oh, that wasn't so too bad. We actually finished a bit early, yeah, which I was I was really pleased about. Um, so we did kind of um, about an hour of kind of promotional material then. So we recorded a vi- kind of a video interview and uh, videoed me kind of reading the, the prologue. Um, I've done the music for the series as well. Um, so I'm a, I'm a musician too, and I recorded some music. I have a, a home studio here in Wexford, so I recorded some music for it too, because I kind of felt that um, I wanted to create a world for these books. And your audiobooks generally don't have sound effects so i listen to an awful lot of audio sort of drama podcasts and you know when you're listening to you know they're talking about somebody walking through the woods you can hear the footsteps of somebody's doing it you can't really do that with an audiobook it's not really done but i did want to sort of world build a little bit uh for the series so um i've, I've recorded 10 tracks i'm recording 10 tracks for each book um, some of them are folk songs, some of them are instrumental pieces, but these are woven through each of the each of the audiobooks. So that's kind of the extra that you get if you buy the audio. The extra that you get if you buy the the the, the printer, the ebook edition will be those couple of little extra chapters kind of afterwards and acknowledgments and whatnot at the end. But I want each package to be kind of unique. And then just moving, I suppose, then from the nonfiction, you've started fiction, not just fiction, though, crime fiction. Again, yeah. why did you start that? We, I went to meet my editor in Hachette, Kira Dorley, um, four years ago now to discuss the next title in the nonfiction series. Now, we had just signed the option for the movie version of The Boy They Tried to Hide, and that was in development. Now, we had initially thought that that would be out within two years. Now, as it happens, we're we're kind of just about to go into pre-production with that at the moment. So it's been a much longer process than I thought that it was going to be. So the initial plan was we knew that the audience for the for the nonfiction had kind of probably got the, the books were selling quite well. But they were, it wasn't growing. We kind of felt that we'd probably gone as far as we could go with that particular series. And we thought we would wait for the movie to come out and we knew that that would cause a surge. Um, and Kira just said to me, look, would you, would you be interested in trying your hand at fiction? And I said, well, what kind of fiction are you talking about? And, and, and she said, well, we think you might 
be quite good as a, a crime writer. There's kind of a crimey thriller element to the last maybe three titles in the, the nonfiction series anyway. And I always sort of try and work a kind of a mystery aspect into what I'm doing to kind of add a bit of pace and make readers want to keep turning the pages. And she said, do you have an idea for a crime book? And as it happens, I'd had an idea bubbling around in my head since long before the first in the nonfiction series had come out anyway. Um, while I was in college, excuse me, a friend of mine called Graham had been on placement in residential childcare and had taken a kid out Christmas shopping on December the 8th. And they had stopped to listen to carol singers on Grafton Street. And while they were listening, um, the, the little girl who he had taken out shopping had slipped her hand out of his. And a few seconds later, he looked down and she was gone. And he said, he had this moment of white knuckle panic. As you can imagine, mm. it's every social care worker's nightmare is to lose the child they're supposed to be caring for. And he said he had five minutes of absolute panic. horror where he couldn't find her. And the next thing he turned around and the crowd parted and this little old lady comes walking up Grafton Street with a child by the hand. She'd wandered off to a toy shop just down the, the, the street, which um, there'd been a toy she'd, she'd wanted to buy, and she'd gone back to that without telling him. And he was, as you can imagine, hugely relieved. But it left me wondering what would have happened if he had never found her. I, I knew Graham quite well, and I kind of, I, I could just imagine his life falling asunder. He'd never stop looking for her. And this had been bubbling around in my head, percolating for, for years, for 20 odd years. So when Kira said to me, do you have an idea? I immediately pitched this idea to her. And she said, look, I kind of like it, but go away. Do me a, a brief outline and some character sketches of who your protagonists are going to be. So I went home, I spent a day or so just mulling it over. And then one Saturday afternoon, I sat down at my laptop and I just started writing. And all this stuff just almost poured out of me. Like, I, I didn't realize how much was in there. But I, I, I had pretty much the character of, of David Dunnigan, my, my main kind of anti-hero in the series, pretty much down in my initial outline, he was going to be a social care worker. Um, and Kira, when she saw that, she just said, no, he has to be something different. So I made him into a, a, a criminologist who teaches half the time and consults with the um, National Bureau of Criminal Investigation, would be kind of like the Irish version of the FBI the rest of the time. But I, I had the outline for the first novel pretty much there. And to my great surprise, I had all of the other characters as well. Um, all of the supporting cast came out without my even having to think about it. I didn't know they were in there, but they were. <laughs> They'd been hiding behind Dunnigan and they had just all poured out onto the page. So within the space of a couple of hours, I had a 14-page outline complete with character sketches of all the main characters. And I sent them off and she gave me a shout almost an hour later and said, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. And, and that was it. And when you sat down to write it then, how long did it take? First draft of After She Vanished, the first book, I think, took me 10 days. Wow. OK, fairly, think, fairly quick again. Now, that did require a major structural rewrite um, after that. I sent it in and they really liked what I had done. But the first hundred pages I had written ended up on the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. Why was that? Um, I, I, I began the story before 
Beth, his niece, was taken. And I had a whole sequence of him. I wanted to show what Donegan was like before. Um, so I had a whole section of him being this kind of up and coming young lecturer. I had a whole section where, um, chief inspector Tormey goes to one of his lectures. So I had the entire lecture in there, which I thought was really interesting. I'd done all of this research about, you know, this kind of very famous missing persons case. I teach criminology myself. So I, I kind of knew I already had quite a bit of background with some of those cases and it, they, my, my editor just said, no, this doesn't belong. This needs to go. Um, so I, we, the first hundred pages went, they just disappeared. And, uh, so in my second, um, edit, um, there was a whole new sequence that went in there, which, which hadn't been in the first draft. So look, that can sometimes happen. And it, it you know, when I reading back on it now, I can see, yeah, in a, in a way what I was doing was I was easing myself in and I don't regret those first hundred pages that have never seen the light of day. I don't regret them because I have a picture in my head now of who he was before um, and what he was like. And there have been, we, we've heard him and his, his twin sister, Gina, who is a major character in the series as well. They occasionally discuss and there's kind of flashbacks maybe of what their life was like beforehand. But we never have that sort of narrative version of it. So it was all helpful, um, but, it, but it ended up being, being shed. And what sort of a publishing deal then did you get? Um, I think it was two books right. is what it was. The first, first deal was for two books. And had you intended to write a series or did you just do a standalone and try then figure out what you were going to do with no, the second we one? Knew, we knew it was going to be a series. I don't think I'd known how many was going to be in the series. Uh, like I knew how After She Vanished was going to end. I didn't know how the second book was going to end. I, I knew that it was going to begin in Dublin. I knew that it was going to go to the west of Ireland and I knew it was going to go from there to Greenland. I knew that. But how it was going to end or whether he was going to find Beth in Greenland, I didn't know until I actually got to Greenland myself with him and started writing it. And I didn't know what the cliffhanger was going to be at the very end. Uh, literally, I got them to the airport where they were flying home and I didn't know what happened until... Boo, it just did. It happened on the page. And that kind of occurs a lot with me that the characters kind of lead me. Now, I've heard other writers saying that they think that this is complete bullshit. The characters <laughs> no, are I was all versions say that. of you. Yeah, you know what they're going to do. I actually don't. Um, for me, it's this is one of, one of the reasons why that very, very immersive writing experience is important for me is because I, I think that what I do is I open, I throw open the door of my unconscious and I kind of almost let that that kind of part step forward. And I give over quite a bit of control to that. And there's a, a sense that really I almost don't want my conscious mind to know. Mm. Uh, but I, the character sketches I create are incredibly detailed. Like I know what David Donegan's phone number is. Right. It's never in the books, but I can, I can tell <laughs> you what it is. I, I've drawn an outline sketch of his flat the fish processing plant in Greenland, I'd drawn a map of it. I could tell you what the temperatures were on the thermometers in the building. Does that visualisation aspect help? Hugely, hugely. When I sat down, after she vanished, did quite well. Again, much better than I expected it to. And um, I, I, I knew that there was pressure on me to kind of recreate 
something with book two. But one of the agreements that I'd had with my publishers was that each, if we did do a series, each book was going to be quite different to the one before it. After She Vanished is very much a character drama, an emotional drama dressed up as a crime novel. The actual disappearance of Beth is tagged on. It, it doesn't, it plays actually other than the impact it has on Dunnigan as a character. It's not a driving part of the narrative. Um, I knew with book two that it was going to be the most important part. It was going to be the driving aspect. But book two of the series, When She Was Gone, is, is really an action thriller, you know? Um, so I, when I sat down to write it, I, I, for the first time ever in my writing career, I was blocked. I couldn't begin. Right. And I sat down, and it's the only time in my career ever that the, the, the flashing cursor on my, my screen seems to be looking at me threateningly. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't move. I sat for four days with the title page written and nothing else. Why? And eventually I, I couldn't move. I couldn't begin. And eventually my wife said to me, because I was going around like a complete and utter bear with a sore head. I was horrible. She said, what is wrong with you? And I just said, I can't start. And she said, well, how did you start the first one? And I explained I'd done all of those character sketches and outlines. And she said, well, do that. And I said, you know, look, I actually feel for the first time ever really unsafe in front of the keyboard. And she said, well, then just go back to basics, pen and paper. And she said, fuck off out of the house, go off up into the mountains or whatever it is that you need to do. Work somewhere else, complete change of scenery. So I actually took a notepad and pen and the dogs and went off up into the mountains and, and worked there for a day. And I, it, during that time, I did exactly what I'd done with book one. I created the world of what the book was going to be. There's a, a beginning section that takes place in, um, in Forensics Ireland. In, in the forensic laboratory. So I actually made a call and said, let's kind of go and have a look at the place. And they allowed me to spend the morning wandering around there. And I got to see exactly what the labs were like and ask all sorts of questions about the process. Uh, again, I, I drew the map. There's a, a section that takes place in a psychiatric hospital um, in, in the west of Ireland. And I drew that. And I again, I, I worked out exactly where the rooms were and what they were going to look like and who was going to be what and where. And I mapped out the gardens and the whole lot. I did everything. As I said, I did a, a map of the fish processing plant in Greenland. I created, I did a huge amount of research on the Inuit community that um, Donegan was going to be spending time with. I did all of that. And once I had that, suddenly I knew I could begin because I felt comfortable in that world. And how uh, are book three and book four then in that sense? Because I knew what I needed to do, they were so much easier. I, I didn't pause at all. I, I knew that I needed to do that work to begin. And as soon as I had that done, I was off and it was completely comfortable. And have you many more roles now for Dunnigan over the next while or what's your plan? Book, book four brings this sequence of the story to an end. Um, so I'm not going to obviously say what happens, but this particular sequence is, is finished. Um, Why She Ran, which is the final book in, in, in this run, kind of wraps up all of these threads of the storylines. Now, it does finish on a little bit of a cliffhanger. So we've left the door open. So the plan with myself and, and my publishers is that we're going to set Dunnigan aside for a little while. Um, I have a, I'm at the currently I'm working with my agent on a new fiction series and um, Hachette uh, have asked me to do a couple of standalone books 
again sort of in in the crime genre with them um and obviously then i'm 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 also working on my my non-fiction series for for audible so that's kind of bubbling away too this year i also did uh for the first time ever i i ghost wrote a book with a lady called Stephanie Hickey, who is a survivor of abuse. And I have been approached to do another one of those. I don't want to say anything about it, but um, it's it's a fairly high-profile case that a lot of people in Ireland will recognise, but I've been asked to ghostwrite a book about that. So I have a lot of other irons in the fire. So Donegan is going to be set aside for the moment. I am going to come back to him because I am extremely fond of him and um, his little motley group of friends and, and the worlds that I created for them. So I will be coming back to it. We're going to set him aside for a little while and other stories are calling to me. Well, Shane Dunphy, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books and you'll find Shane's books online at your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at InsideBooksIRE. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on the various audio platforms and don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production 